Hey, it's Alex Pearson on point, and today on the podcast, Jazz's Canada wasn't you know getting set to announce retaliations against the U.S. over our steel and aluminum. Donald Trump blinked. Why? Politics at play, and what does it mean for our trade relationship moving forward? We'll speak with the author of Missing in the Village. This is all about Bruce MacArthur and how he evaded Toronto police. But has it changed the way Toronto police are responding to other homicides, including a warning this week about another possible serial killer? And we'll discuss Trudeau's plans to boost childcare and develop a national drug plan and all these lofty promises we're going to have to pay for. But how? We will talk about that. So let's get started. There you go. What does that sound? That is the sound of anarchy and mob rule that uh, no one in charge will deal with. Hello there. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, September 2. Well, someone said the 25th. No, no, it is the 15th. I hope you had a great uh, day. Certainly for a lot of parents, all about getting the kids back to school, doing so while being blasted with the warnings and all the worries about increased cases. Now they're up, now they're down. And of course, threats of another lockdown. But um, while the focus is all about COVID, there are a number other of other crises I think, festering, and they're being ignored, certainly in the city of Toronto, and they're making societies at large unsafe. And over the weekend, and what you heard off the top of, of the show, was an event billed as Takeover Toronto. It's gone largely unnoticed. The event uh, involved over 100 cars that blocked off an intersection near the Toronto Zoo around 2 a.m. Sunday morning. And that's where a bunch of idiots acted out uh, scenes of Fast and Furious, doing all sorts of stunts, burning tires, as this huge mob-like group cheered it on. I, I have no idea what the fascination is. I mean, if you see the video, and it's well worth, you know, looking at. I mean, had the car gone out of control, we'd be doing a different kind of story today because it could have very easily sent someone... Uh, into their coffin because uh, they're like within inches of a an idiot spinning his car out. But that that's not the point of my conversation. It's what happened when three Toronto cop cars were sent to the scene. And normally when sirens and lights are sounding, you, you see kind of the lawbreakers flee. But not these days. This video shows the very opposite. What you see is this feral mob reaction. The cars box in the cops in their car. And then you see the crowd run towards the cop cars, swarming them, and then getting on the hood of one of the cop cars with emboldened lawbreakers jumping, kicking the vehicles with the cops inside, and of course, videotaping it. You got to get those clicks and likes, right? I mean, the video is shocking, but it illustrates an illness in society and what happens when those in charge refuse to take charge. And by taking charge, I'm talking about you, elected officials. I mean, what's clearly seen in, in the video is that anarchy is in charge. 
fueled, of course, by a very unchallenged narrative that all cops are bad, they should be defunded. And because that narrative's taken hold, it's clear that a small but vocal segment of society no longer feel the rules and laws apply to them. They see also what's going on across the border, and they are becoming emboldened by it, even though we don't have those types of issues here. So when the cops show up, they're not respected. Instead, they get the middle finger and threats to their lives with absolutely zero concern of consequence. And so it's no wonder morale is absolutely rock bottom among cops. I mean, who the heck would want to be a cop today when the risks of the job have been further complicated by those who know they can get away with it and where you feel no one has your back? Because where has the condemnation been from those in charge? This happened on Sunday morning at 2 a.m. That video has been out there for a while. John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, finally addressed the incident today. But listen to his message to these losers. It didn't address their threats to law enforcement. It just talked about the street racing. It's an epidemic. Uh, it is an epidemic that has been uh, caused by people who are thoughtless, uh, who disregard the safety of themselves and others, uh, and who have also shown a huge disrespect uh, for police uh, when police try to uh, intervene. I have spoken with the chief this morning, and uh, I can just say to you that without giving away how they're going to go about things, which he directs, not me, um, they're on this. And uh, I think that we need to bring down, uh, you know, the full weight of the law on these people. I agree. But you know what? That, that, that video shows far more than disrespect. It is absolute violence, provocation, mischief, damage. I mean, there are cops in those cars, and they are being swarmed by hundreds of people who are getting off on acting like animals. And there's plenty of video of this event because these people are too stupid to realize they're creating evidence that can and should be used against them. And I think that the message needs to be sent that this is not going to be tolerated because it'll just keep happening and it's going to get worse. So there's plenty of video out there showing faces, showing license plate numbers, and I certainly hope the cops are looking into it. But it's not just the cops that are dealing with this kind of, you know, lawlessness. I don't know what's happening where you live, but when you drive around Toronto these days, it is very clear Toronto is no longer Toronto the good. This city looks awful. It is not safe. It is not clean. We've got shootings now daily. We hardly report on them anymore. I mean, they happen anytime, anywhere, any time of day. Again, absolutely no fear of consequence from those no longer taking charge. I don't know if you've been in a city park in the downtown, they're starting to be taken over by tent cities, which are littered with garbage, dirty needles, increased crime, and vicious dogs that are set loose on anyone who challenges them. I mean, reporters are, uh, you know, show up to see what's going on or tell a story and who have perfectly legal right to be in a public park and they get chased off, threatened. So it's clear the pandemic has exposed a homeless crisis, but what's the plan to deal with it? It certainly can't be allow, you know, to allow people in need to simply pitch a tent in public spaces and parks where kids play. I mean, these are public spaces. They belong to the public at large, not just a segment of it. And the city of Toronto and the province own billions in real estate. And there's a lot that just sits empty. I mean, certainly someone, anybody can think outside the box and create a temporary shelter for these people while finding a solution, which has been decades in the making. I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many ribbon cuttings I have gone for affordable housing that never gets built. So this goes far beyond nimbyism because it's a growing problem 
that's going to get much worse is being allowed to take root. And once that happens, we no longer have a lawful society. And if those in charge, you know, choose to ignore the brazen crime and disorder playing out very publicly on our streets, whether it's in public spaces or against our cops, eventually there's going to be pushback. Either someone's going to take it into their own hands in a case of vigilante justice, or someone's going to get killed. But that's what happens when you don't have law and order, which is what we've got right now in the city of Toronto. We will talk about this throughout the show because some of the questions I have is like, how do you, how do you now be a cop in a big city if you see stuff like that? Because you pass those videos around and people just get off on it and then they think, oh, well, if that guy can, you know, jump on a police car or surround a police car or mob the police car, then, then I can do it too. And I, if I'm a cop, I'm saying, it's not worth it for me to go into that. Why am I being sent, sent into that when I, you know, what if one of these cops had gone out of the car and defended themselves, which they would have had absolutely every right to do? Well, of course, there'd be more calls to defund them. They wouldn't be allowed to defend themselves. So we'll talk about that. Um, we have a very busy show today, which uh, we'll get into. Not to mention, like, the first of all, aluminum and steel is going to be tariffed. No more. Trump blinked. And whether you like it or not, it's a big win for the Trudeau government. So we will talk about that. And we'll talk about whether or not Chinese national students should be restricted in what they learn on Canadian university campuses. And this is um, to do with concerns from intelligence, CSIS, and, and those in the United States who are saying, this is going directly to the Chinese military. We've got to be more careful. And we've got to start cracking down on these Chinese nationals, not all of them, but many who come and then end up doing research and working for or with the Chinese military. So we'll talk about that in the nine o'clock hour. But we have a lot to talk about. Certainly, of course, uh, watching cases, they go up, they go down, the numbers are all around. And uh, Premier Ford uh, pretty much said today that changes are coming to social gatherings in Ontario hotspots because they are driving up cases. Ignorant people are why we can't have good things. That's as simple as it gets. There are no guarantees going forward. As we have learned, there are, are not in our trading relationship with this administration. And that's why the Team Canada approach is to hope for the best, prepare for the worst, that is Christopher Freeland, new finance minister, and for code that says, uh, until Donald Trump's gone, nothing's nothing's going to be secure. But just hours after Canada said it would announce these retaliatory measures against the U.S. over uh, these 10% tariffs on our steel and aluminum, the Trump administration kind of just abruptly just backed down. I mean, it's a pretty stunning reversal on a move that shocked many of us here when it was actually initially announced because it didn't really make a lot of sense. And I would suspect it has something to do with the fact that uh, there's a vote in seven weeks, big old election, and this is a particular issue that hits many in vote-rich Rust Belt area. But nonetheless, uh, you know, there's a lot of buts and ifs with this particular decision. Let us bring in someone who probably knows a hell of a lot more than uh, me, Mark Warner. Mark Warner is an international competition and trade lawyer. Good to have you, sir. Um, thanks for having me on, Alex. It's nice to be with you. 
So Trump, Trump blinked, essentially. I mean, it's a pretty big win, even if you don't like Trudeau, but it's a pretty big win, not just for, for Trudeau, but for the country. Uh, well, you see, the funny thing about it is, is I'm both an American and a Canadian trade lawyer. So I, I tend to look at these things slightly differently. I, I, so it's it, 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 where should I start? I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling my words already. Um, <laughs> I think if the best I could put out it for Canada is to say that it's a face-saving excuse for a face-saving um, solution for both countries. It's being spun well. I have to give it to Christian Freeland. He is very good at getting media people to repeat her lines in Canada. Mm. <laughs> I never understood it completely. But essentially what this comes down to is the United States wanted a quota uh, on aluminum exports to the United States. Canada has always said no to having a quota. So the Americans put on board these unusual national security, what we call Section 232 tariffs. They left them on. Canada said, well, listen, we're not going to come back to the complete the new NAFTA agreement negotiations unless you take them off. So the Americans said, OK, we'll do this agreement. And in that agreement, they said, we're basically going to make you agree to a quota. Of course, the way it was spun in Canada was the un- unilateral surrender by the United States. And then barely a year and a half later, the Americans come back and put back on um, the tariffs in response to what they call the surge of the export of Canadian primary aluminum. And then now, a couple hours before Canada threatened retaliation, the Americans have lifted that. But this time, they lifted it in an agreement where they've actually put numbers. They've said, these are the numbers that we expect you, Canada, to export to us in the following three months, and we're going to check them. So they've got a quota. So Christian Freeland's entire approach to this file has all been about resisting a quota, and we now have a quota, and somehow she's able to spin that as a win, which is just, she's going to be great, <laughs> but it's crazy. Well, <laughs> it's not true. It's, it's, it's a quota. Canada agreed to a quota. I think it's good that the retaliatory tariffs aren't going into effect, but the idea that this is a great crusading victory for Canada is absurd. It's, it's basically Canada agreeing to what Donald Trump asked for two years ago. Right. And the devil is always in the detail on these things and how you can spin it. And the conservatives have always kind of been chiming in saying this is not a good deal. This is not a good deal. But the fact that that uh, this uh, government got any deal at all, yeah. as you know, was going to be considered a victory. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I get it. I'm just saying I just I just think it's and I get that part of it, too. I think that that is good. It's just that I mean, the, it's, it's a complicated argument to have because part of the argument would be saying, you could have got the agreement sooner if you didn't create a roadblock like this fight over the tariffs, if you just agreed to some face-saving kind of quota instead of having putting in place retaliatory tariffs that are actually paid for by Canadian consumers, right? Like whenever she says we're going to impose these dollar-for-dollar tit-for-tat retaliation, it's not like Americans pay for that. We pay for that. So if you're importing right. a washing machine to Canada, you're paying for her dollar-to-dollar, dollar-for-dollar tariff. You're buying golf clubs. You're paying for Christian Freeland's tariff. So it's, it's kind of a weird thing. Now, I guess if you, if you want to, like, it's a, it's a feeling of nationalism and national pride to feel like we're not knuckling under to the big elephant next door. But it's a weird kind of not knuckling under when, in fact, you're basically paying for the, paying for the um, tariffs that you impose. So I think this is good. I think this will get us through the election. Um, you know, obviously, if Biden is wins, I, I, my guess is that these tariffs will be gone. But people need to remember that we've seen, <clears throat> sorry, we've seen tariffs on aluminum steel before um, under previous presidents. 
<clears throat> so that issue is not going to go away. Like, for instance, um, the, one of the issues that's at play here, a lot of this is sort of technical stuff, but one of the issues at play has to do with Hydro-Quebec. And the more Americans try to develop new aluminum um, smelters or whatever in the United States, the more they're going to look at the, the sweetheart deals that um, the aluminum producers, most of which are in Quebec, get from <clears throat> Sorry, that cough and crazy now. Um, that Alex, they, that don't don't do that in this day and age. My goodness, you're <laughs> no, I know. Tested. Oh, luckily, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, but the thing is, the thing is, so so that's part of the argument. Now, we'll argue that it's spurious, that in fact it's a natural competitive advantage. But get used to it, because when Biden gets elected or whoever it is, the American producers who are complaining are going to keep looking at Hydro Quebec, and they're going to keep saying, "Well, wait a sec, what?" You know, the big competitive advantage that Canada has in shipping aluminum to the United States is cheap electricity. And so as America tries to become self-sufficient in some of these things, they're going to be looking at that. They're going to be looking at that no matter who's president of the United States. So we've had four years where we're able to sweep everything under the rug and mm-hmm. blame it on Trump. But right. I, I guess I'm saying these, these trade issues were around before Trump, and they're going to come back if Trump leave, the day Trump leaves, if he leaves. If he doesn't yeah. leave... Yeah, everyone's assuming he's going to leave. I'm not so sure he's going. I mean, and I know no, that I, uh, I, I, I actually, I actually think he. The more and more, uh, you know, I think he's going to stay, and so it, that means the problems just, uh, you know, this is going to constantly bring instability to a particular uh, industry that, um, you know, is is fairly big for our country. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I, I think that there's a good possibility that, I mean, if this comes back, the way that this new, what the Americans announced today, they said. They're going to monitor these numbers every month um, and that they will make a decision whether to reimpose the tariffs. Now, Christian Freeland's response to that is, well, if you come back to the tariffs, we'll come back with the retaliation, which is fine, um, <clears throat> as long as it stays within the framework of the agreement. Of course, the last agreement we signed with them, we, we limited our ability to retaliate, to simply retaliate on products that contain aluminum in it. Like, so before with tariff retaliation, you try to find like Kentucky bourbon and you find like a... A, um, a state where Mitch McConnell is from Kentucky and you try to put pressure on him by something that's really important. But now we're limited to very few, if you think of it, products containing aluminum. So <clears throat> I think it's good from a point of view of the Canadian economy, the Ontario economy, it's good that both sides basically walked away from this particular battle for now. But it's really just a temporary reprieve. Uh, the issue really hasn't fully gone underway. I think some of the Canadian aluminum Aluminum producers are now beginning to say that as a couple hours have passed since the announcement. They're now saying, well, this we're still living under the knife. Right. Yeah. But we've never really been able to kind of get the details of how it all works. And I think because it's such a complex issue, you know, everyone just sees the the front page and says, "Okay, we have no tariffs. Oh, we do have tariffs. And they draw their 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 uh, decision making on whether they hate Trump or like Trump. And so, again, devil's always in the details. But as as you're obviously explaining, it's not a problem uh, that has gone. It will be uh, rearing its ugly head as long as uh, the deal is as such. Mark, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope I wasn't too long-winded and coughing too much. <laughs> no, your sneezing is welcome here, and uh, all I can say is bless you, bless you, bless you. <laughs> so stay healthy. Cheers. There's uh, Mark Warner joining us. So get a bit of a different perspective from Mark. Um, you know, uh, the, the headlines might say one thing about a big win. Maybe it's not such a big win. The title is Missing from the Village, and it is the uh, story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur. Uh, An in-depth look at the tragic series of events that allowed this serial killer to methodically prey and kill 
eight gay men in Toronto's uh, gay village and community over a decade. And the warnings should have been seen way back as far as 2013 when a number of men went missing, and yet his killing spree would go on completely unchecked. And it's a timely book uh, coming out because Toronto police just issued a warning Monday about a possible serial killer linked to two recent murders. And I strongly suspect this case and the author of this book is the reason they are proactively putting that information out there. Justin Ling is a freelance investigative journalist, and he is also the author of Missing from the Village. Good to have you, Justin. Hey, good evening. No one followed this case uh, case more closely than you. I mean, it was you who kept digging even after police called off the investigation into the disappearance of three men back in 2013. And so by 2015, the case had gone cold. Everyone had moved on. But you stayed on it. And it, and it's because of that that you've been able to not only, I think, uh, help break open the case, uh, but certainly give you such an in-depth knowledge about this. Well, I mean, I thank you. I mean, it was... It was frustrating to work on this case. You know, from the beginning, you know, men started disappearing from Toronto's gay village in 2010, um, and three of them in the span of about two years, um, you know, without really tripping any alarm systems, right? You know, three men of very similar ethnicity, similar age, similar, you know, sexuality, um, you know, similar uh, national origin, you know, who went to the same bars, who knew some of the same people, disappeared, and yet, it was nobody connected them. There was no sort of alarm, no sort of warning from police, no sort of statement like what you saw just today from the Toronto police saying that they believed that there might be a connection. It took a whole year after the third man went missing before police finally came out and said, we believe these cases may be linked. It was at that point, many asked the very you know obvious question of, is there a serial killer? And Toronto police repeatedly said no. They played it down. They said, we have no evidence of that. And, and they went beyond that to say, you know, we do not believe that is the case. Unfortunately, right. the yeah, investigation that was set up into that those, those disappearances ran for only about a year and was shut down. Um, you know, it, it was after that that men continued to go missing. But even after the case was reopened very publicly in 2017, Toronto police kept saying, we don't believe there's a serial killer. And it took them actually arresting the serial killer for them to finally acknowledge you know, what everyone in the village had sort of come to accept in the years prior, that there was a serial killer targeting the village. And it turned out that it was much worse than anyone could have imagined. Right. And they had had people actually go to them. They had one witness that went in and reported a man and an incident that had happened that he was very rattled by and it was kind of laughed off or sloughed off. But, you know, when when people are reported missing, as you well know, especially if they're an adult, it is it is generally met with a shrug. Uh, more so, I think, if you're either in, in a, a marginalized community or, or you're in the gay community, it's often just met with a shrug. Has that changed since since this case? It's hard to say. I, I, I believe it has. You know, I genuinely believe that, that the Toronto police did seem to face a reckoning uh, around this case, you know, seemed to realize that the sort of nonchalant way in which they dealt with uh, missing persons cases um, you know, was putting people in jeopardy. And I think, you know, the, the creation of a dedicated missing persons unit, which happened just recently, which is a great first step. You know, the decision to start more aggressively using, um, you know, public databases to let the public know who's actually missing and still missing critically um, is, a, is a good step, though I don't think it's being done to the extent that it could be. Um, so I think, you know, there are positive changes 
That being said, you know, there are still many missing people in Toronto who may well be the victims of serial killers, who may well be murder victims that I, I don't think get enough attention in the city. You know, there were cases that were linked, potentially linked, at least, you know, kind of uncircumstantial evidence to the MacArthur investigation uh, that, is, that are still unsolved, that, that, that still have not, you know, found answers. And I think that's really that's really disheartening. The fact that there are these, you know, outstanding cases, um, you know, where, you know, I think a little bit more public attention could, you know, ultimately change, um, you know, the outcome of that case. Now, you know, in this case that we're looking at today, I think it's a really positive development that the Toronto police were not afraid of that label, serial killer. I think in this case, it, it's pretty clear cut. I mean, you have um, video uh, surveillance evidence of a possible suspect, you have two killings um, that that of, of victims of very very similar victimology, uh, two men who are either Arab or East or South Asian, mm-hmm. um, and a, a similar uh, you know killing style. I think it would be very very hard not to acknowledge the possibility that whoever did these is is a serial killer. Um, you know, and I but I think it, it does it suggests some self reflection by Toronto Police for them just not to be so. Uh, hesitant about using that word. Yeah, I mean, Hank Insignia was the lead detective uh, during the time of MacArthur uh, in the end of that case, and certainly he came out Monday to to deal uh, with the issue himself. And so I do think that there has been a, a real shift uh, in in approach to these things. It won't make anyone feel better, but certainly um, if they didn't learn anything from all the red flags that were ignored when it came to Bruce MacArthur, uh, whether it was failures uh, to, to protect those in, in um, the gay community or those who are either homeless or, or, or on the margins, um, you know, that may in fact be changing. But the fact that Hank himself, I think, came out was a, was a pretty telling statement. I think that's absolutely right. You know, they, they're not delegating this down to, um, you know, a, a more junior detective. The fact that, you know, the acting head of homicide is the one, you know, jumping in, you know, a, a homicide detective who has, you know, a pretty significant experience in dealing with uh, serial murder investigations. Uh, you know, the fact that he was out there proactively dealing with media, I think, is a, is a good sign. I, you know, I've dealt with uh, Hank Atsinga kind of significantly over the last several years. And I can tell you that he his instincts are, are good. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, the more he rubs off on Toronto police, the better, the better off Toronto police are going to be. His instinct is to go speak to the media. His instinct is to go, you know, treat the public like adults and tell them where the investigation's at tell them where the evidence is pointing and, and not be so, you know, concerned about, you know, you know, creating panic or creating fear, because in some cases you just need to be honest with the public. You need to treat them um, as though they're grown ups, and you need to give them the available information so that they can, you know, protect themselves so that they can come forward if they, if they see something that could be potentially material evidence so that they can, uh, you know, understand the gravity of the situation. Yeah, so the reign of terror doesn't last over a decade, but it is uh, taken care of as quickly as possible. Uh, The book is called Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur. It comes out uh, at the end of the uh, month of September, and this is the search for justice in the system that failed Toronto's queer community. Justin Ling, thank you for coming on, and uh, congratulations on this. I know this is a big project for you, but uh, years of work now available in bookstores. Thanks, Alex. That strong fiscal position that Canada had entering this crisis is what gave us the firepower to fight 
the coronavirus, to fight on the health front, to fight, to do the things we needed to do on the economic front. And let me just assure Canadians that we understand the value of wise and prudent fiscal management, and that is a policy our government will continue. Mm-hmm. So Krista Freeland says she's been talking to Paul Martin about what Canada's recovery plan should look like and a bit of advice. But I don't think that even Paul Martin would advise the Trudeau government seize the moment and transform this country into a green dream that uh, Trudeau insists that we become. And after weeks of these promises of bold change involving billions injected into a green tech, the prime minister seems to be backing off uh, in getting crafty with the recovery. So we might, we, we not, may not see any seizing of the moment in next week's throne speech, but certainly enough's been leaked that the liberals uh, are clearly going to be spending uh, a lot more money outlefting the NDP with the promise of things like universal pharmacare, childcare help, and health spending. Let us bring in Aaron Woodrick. He is the executive director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hello there, sir. How are you doing, Alex? Uh, good. Just a little bit of a tin, tinny ear in your cell phone, but hopefully we can get the uh, connection uh, going. Um, you know, it, it appears that most of the big kind of uh, lofty green um, initiatives may be shelved for now. And, and that might be because the Trudeau government is seeing an, you know, an uptick of the cases and maybe got a little bit concerned that this was not the right time to freak Canadians out. How do you see it? I, I think so. I mean, I think they read the room. I think they realized that they sounded like they were exploiting a worldwide health tragedy to just sort of advance the stuff they wanted to do all along. And I think maybe they've actually talked to enough people, including people in their own caucus, Alex, who realized that was a terrible idea. And so they've walked back from the end of the cliff. So if that's true, that's great news. Um, I think you're right, though. I think they are still eyeing a bunch of other big ticket items, stuff that we can't afford. And if there's any good news about Krista Freeland saying she's, you know, was talking to Paul Martin, well, maybe you should get some tips from him on how he managed to cut spending and get the deficit under control when they had a big problem with debt, which is exactly the situation we find ourselves in right now. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because Jonathan Wilkinson, who is the environment minister, has uh, doubled down on this clean fuel tax. It doesn't get a lot of play, but it is coming. So that is one very big green initiative that they plan to do, and it's a double tax. So it's a tax on top of the carbon tax, and that's going to have real consequences and real costs for not just everyday people, but businesses. No, it is. And I mean, first of all, it undermines the argument for the carbon tax. Remember the whole point, Alex, is we were told if you put this tax on, it's a market-based mechanism. You don't need all these regulations and things like a clean fuel standard. So they're contradicting themselves. They're also contradicting themselves when they talk about not hiking taxes. The reason that Justin Trudeau and Christopher Freeland have said they don't want to increase taxes is because they understand that that makes life harder right now. Well, then why are they talking about just doing it in a backdoor way by making essential goods like fuel for most people? Uh, even more expensive than they are now. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing that's going to come in. It'll probably get very little attention, and and you've got to really read the fine print on it. But the other the other things that they they look to be going ahead with, or announce, and, and again, I think it's important that we say throne speeches are not budgets, and so um, throne speeches are often they sound good and lots of big words, but they they tend to not always get delivered. I mean, it's where we heard things of electoral reform and all the rest of it. That uh, it's almost like a throne speech is a place where things go to die. But um, you can expect a national pharmacare program. Um, which if we did that, it'd be about $20.4 billion. And the other one is uh, healthcare spending and, and uh, childcare, uh, daycare plans. 
Yeah, I mean, the Thoros Beach is really just sort of mapping out the categories and they fill in the actual dollar figures, hopefully this fall with a fiscal update. We haven't, remember, we didn't have a budget this year, so it's been a long time since we've seen some hard numbers. But you're right, I mean, the, the things have been bandied around are pharmacare, um, more money on health care, child care. Ironically, Alex, a lot of these things are provincial jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And yet here mm-hmm. we have a federal government that seems just absolutely determined to stick its nose into areas that actually aren't even really un- part of its responsibility. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask you because it, it, they are provincial issues. And, and when you take something like pharmacare, I mean, there are an awful lot of people, uh, myself included, maybe yourself, who have coverage through their work. Um, I don't want anyone touching my pharma coverage. It works for me, my family. Um, and so the pharmacare, depending on how they table it, you know, if, it, if it's for low income people, okay, but I still don't know how they're going to do it jurisdictionally across the country. Yeah, you know, pharmacare, it's a strange one that people want to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater on this. I mean, we have a system right now that works very well for about 70 to 80 percent of Canadians. I think it's fair to talk about ways that we can close the gap for the remaining 20 percent. But it seems like a really strange way to approach a problem where you say, okay, this is working for 80%. Let's wipe the whole thing out and start from scratch rather than saying, why don't we leave the, what's working for the 80% and think about ways that we can help the remaining 20 Right. Um, and, and on the issue of childcare, I mean, the biggest change that they could do that would help people with childcare is allow for structural changes in how it's delivered. In other words, it's not a nine to five program anymore. It can't be. I mean, you'll take someone like myself or a shift worker who works nights. Uh, the reason we had to get a nanny is because you can't on my shift or, or if you're working shift work, you can't use a daycare because they're not open after uh, five o'clock. Yeah, and that speaks to the fundamental problem of one-size-fits-all government policy, right? When government thinks they know best, um, they design something that's designed for certain people, but other people can't use it. And that's why, if you know, whatever they're going to do, and frankly, that's why the Stephen Harper approach of sending money to people, which the liberals then tweak, you know, to deliver the money based on needs, that's a better approach because it puts money in the hands of people who can then decide what works best for them and their families. But didn't Paul Martin um, want to do a, a national daycare uh, plan? I thought it was Paul Martin, and if so, maybe that would make sense why she's t- why he's talking to Christian Freeland. Yeah, I, I can't recall about that specific policy. It is definitely something the Liberals had talked about. Uh, that was their position. They changed their tune on that. They adopted the basically the Harper approach of sending money directly to people. I think it would be really something for them to, to to walk that back right now. I mean, we don't we don't have a lot of money to say the least. And while people could appreciate, uh, you know, more money, uh, people who need it, um, you know, the idea that, that what we need right now is another giant national creaking program is, is mm. it's probably going to be a tough sell. And then the big one is those on CERB. I mean, we've got three million, uh, you know, we've got millions of people who are going to be off this thing in a matter of, of a week and a half. They're going to be blended somehow into this employment insurance program. Um, I don't know how they're going to make this work. They've left it down to the wire. And again, I don't know if they've got bridge plans in place. Should all of a sudden all hell break loose, um, you know, next uh, on the 23rd. I mean, a lot of people, millions of people would be high and dry. Yeah, but you know what? CERB had to end. As you said, they've had a lot of time. People knew this was coming. Um, You know, I don't think anyone has a problem with help still going to people who need it, but they really needed to narrow it down so that it was only the people who really need it getting it and ensuring that the people who had the option of going back to work and the ability that they were going to do that. But they're not. I mean, as you well know, the, the, the program and what's so troubling about the, the fine print on this thing is that, you know, they've changed it so that if you've worked three weeks in one year, you can apply and qualify for six months uh, in, in, in EI. I mean, like that, that's a hell of a deal, a hell of an expensive deal. 
Well, yeah, it's definitely going to be expensive for taxpayers. And, and frankly, it could start setting up problems in certain parts of the country where we have seen this, where there's seasonal work and people yeah. get into a pattern where they know they work the minimum number of hours and then they quit and they repeat this every year. I mean, this is not, I'm not attacking, uh, you know, people specifically here, but there's, this is a fact. This happens. And the last thing we want is for people to abuse a system that's designed to help people in emergency by creating these terrible incentives that lead people to, to make bad choices. Yeah, in particular issues. It, it, it mainly, I think we're referring to the East Coast, where you get seasonal working, like a fisheries, uh, you know, marine, uh, you know, jobs on on ships and that. Again, it's like you work hard uh, one particular season, and then you've got a, a few months off uh, to you. But but I tend to agree. Well, uh, we'll talk closer to it, and probably uh, during uh, or at the time of the throne speech, and we'll wait and see what uh, what comes. I appreciate your insight, Aaron. Thanks a lot, Alex. Aaron Woodrick joining us here tonight, the throne speech. What, what's the date? Uh, we're eight days away from that. So we'll see what else they uh, kind of sprinkle out and tease us with. But there's no question they seem to have walked back a few of their big moment items. That is your podcast for today. And, of course, you can join us live on point Monday to Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.